Tim, you got your your son got you into Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> he, he did uh, yeah I, I just put his name in but i'm actually taking the courses no um it's a free <laughs> so you're listening to working code and now your hosts who wish they were boolean so the next time they're wrong it's only by a bit adam ben carol and tim Okay, here we go. It is show number 152. And on today's show, we're going to talk about visualizing your cron heat map, Harvard's AI course, and Ben's book. But first, as usual, we'll start with our triumphs and fails. And Ben, it looks like it's your turn to go first. What's going on, man? Yeah, I'm going to kick it off with a failure. It's a light failure. But at work, we've been using Framework One, which is just a cold fusion web development framework. And as with many frameworks, you have the option to define a whole lot of routes using pattern matching. And then those routes get mapped onto internal server-side controller calls. And after essentially creating a custom pattern route for like every internal API call over the last decade, Mm -hmm. it only just recently, like in the last couple of months, dawned on me that I don't actually need internally used routes to actually look nice in any way whatsoever. And I've slowly been going through the application. And well, I should say, as I'm building new internal routes, I'm just using the the routing pattern that would naturally work. Um, right, the default this, routing. Right, exactly. You can do like subsystem colon controller dot method name. And it just it just feels like I've been jumping through all these pattern matching hoops for years. And, and it's so frustrating to realize that I've been doing something for so long without actually understanding why I was doing it in the first place. And now that I've stepped back and asked, actually asked myself, what was the value add of doing this? I realized there was no value add. And in fact, all it does is leave a lot of cruft configuration in the application. Mm-hmm. It makes it a lot more complicated to even understand how things are being invoked. And um, just frustrated. I'm just frustrated when I do, I call it sloppy. It's like, it's yeah. just sloppy. You copy paste something and you never really think about why you're doing it in the first place. Well, you know, better late than never, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, you about know, how many years? Like six, seven years? Eight or nine, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think as web developers, I, or I, I can't say as web developers, I, I'll say that I spent so long thinking about what public routes looked like, especially... Coming from a blogging background, you know, you think about the URL structures and creating slugs and how do you get an ID in the URL without making it seem just like gibberish so that it has some SEO juice maybe poured on top of it a little bit. And I think taking that mentality and then porting it into a business product context, it just that, that I think that's where I made the mistake. But I wasn't coming at it from a business standpoint, I was coming at it almost from a SEO standpoint, but mm-hmm. internal routes don't need SEO. Users don't see them. And even if users do see them in the network activity or whatnot, like who cares what those URLs? It shouldn't be easy for them to understand necessarily. It should be easy to implement as an engineer. So what was your aha moment that made you realize you didn't need to do that? So I think my aha moment was that in order to consume those routes from a SPA or a single page application, you have to construct a URL in your API calls on the client side, which usually uses some sort of, in Angular, you can sort of define these weird resources that will kind of do URL interpolation for you. So you could say, I want this to go to slash users slash colon user ID. I guess it's actually an at user ID, I think in the resource I don't remember offhand. And then you can say, here's here's an object and it has a user ID. And then it'll end up generating the URL where it replaces the at user ID with the value you give it. And I just had this moment where I'm like, why am I even worrying about interpolating string values into URLs when I could just say, go to this subsystem controller, controller method, and then all of the values that I actually want to pass either get appended as URL, you know, this equals that parameters or posted as a body. And it just, it just seemed all of a sudden like so much less work. Because I didn't have, you already know those values. 
Yeah, exactly. I didn't have to. I didn't have to construct a URL. I think that was it. Is like, there was a moment where I realized I didn't have to build a URL anymore, and that just seemed so much easier. And then that made me wonder why I was even doing it in the first place. Because nine years ago, you needed to. <laughs> you just forgot to update your code. But Cargo culted that. <laughs> the, the the frustrating thing now is if you go into the application CFC. So framework one, the way it works is you have your application CFC, which extends the framework one's version of the application CFC, and then you can define all your configuration and your event handlers. And if you open up our application CFC, I mean, there's probably seven hundred custom pattern routes being defined in the application Ooh. CFC. It's it's bananas. And I know that this is a micro-optimization, but one thing that I always consider, or that is always tickling the back of my mind, is in Cold Fusion, every single time you make a request to the application, the application mm-hmm. CFC gets reinstantiated on every single request, which means that this giant 700-line object has to get instantiated and put into the memory of the request, which, you know, in the grand scheme of things, is probably not even worth considering, but... I know that that's happening. and Feels it feels untidy. It, yeah, it just makes me all the more angry that those are there. And the, the, the super frustrating thing is because that's just like an internal redirect, so to speak, for the routing of the request, is it makes it really challenging to know when I can remove those custom mappings. Because if I update my client-side code to no longer use them and to actually just hit the controller directly, like, I don't know if anything's actually calling that weird mapping anymore because all of the, all of the, 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 like the stats D that I'm recording is, mm-hmm. is at the, like the final controller level. It has nothing to do with the incoming route. It's the final, it's like what, which controller method was actually hit. So I, I just, so there's this appendage now that I feel like I can never get rid of. I feel your pain. I know exactly what you're talking about. Like, there's just, you don't feel like there's a deterministic way to know is right. this still being used? So I think it's been a while since I've been in this part of the guts of framework one, but I think there's going to be, I, I couldn't even imagine what, to, what it's called, but there's going to be a function that you can override where it's doing the resolution of those oh. aliases or whatever. And so you're just basically going to say, okay, log that this one was used where however you want to log that fact and then call super dot whatever, right? So you're, you're just, you know, you're sort of monkey patching on some additions, but you don't want to change the underlying behavior right so if it's if it's Ooh. if it's a resolve alias right then you're gonna do function resolve alias do your logging and just call super dot resolve alias that's pretty clever it didn't even occur to me to do or, that or that is it just super i don't know i don't do that very much some yeah i'm, I'm sure i can figure it out i mean it's it, i mean the frame the framework or what is it like one dot cfc or framework dot cfc i can't remember what it's called like it's just sitting there in the file mm-hmm. system you know, it's yeah. easy enough to go in. Yeah, I did that for our application, which is also built on Framework 1, for, I think it is the request handler, the one that like wraps before and after. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't even remember what for, but it was just like, I had this moment one day, you know, I was like struggling for, I don't know, half a day on something. Like, I I, I need to, I, I want to hook into those lifecycle events. And I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> just use the, use the platform, as they say. Yeah. Right, exactly. So better late than never, but always good to question why you're doing certain things. I, I just want to, I got to squeeze this in here before we yeah. move off this topic. You know, when, when you're talking about, you know, you've got 700 of these things and, and Tim said you cargo culted yourself. <laughs> I just had this vision in my head of the DJ Khaled, like, congratulations, you played yourself. <laughs> you played yourself. <laughs> Another one. <laughs> oh, all right. Groovy. So that's me. Carol, what do you got going on? Guys, I'm going to go with a big giant win. Uh, A few weeks ago, I mentioned that I was having a really hard time getting SQL to alias so that I didn't have to change my code. I got it working, so now I don't have to change my code. So whether I run the Docker version of the database or I run the updated version, I just go in and add my new name piped alias for it and I am good to go. So I am super happy. I thought I had it working. Then I realized I forgot to do it on both versions because apparently you have to make the configuration change in 32-bit and 64-bit in order for it to work. So once I made the second change, everything just connected like it was supposed to. So I got to go delete all my stash code where I had went through and made all the changes (laughs) and kept 
deleting it, reapplying it, deleting it, reapplying it. And now it just works like magic. Nice. Well, and if I recall, something you were saying in the previous episode was that because you are new to the team, this affected you, but it wasn't necessarily affecting anyone else because they were doing incremental patches to their database. Yeah, yeah, they you've kept reapplying the migration, yeah. But So you've now unblocked not only yourself, but anyone else who might subsequently join the team or have to wipe out their entire database for some reason, yeah. right? Yeah, so if anyone needs to do a full restore now, they can use my method because those databases are stored encrypted. So you can't, unencrypt them on the 2019 version you have to have the 2022 version of sql server in order for anything to work so yeah super excited about that because now other people will be able to follow that same plan that i laid out which currently is just written on a notepad but i will get it into the repo very soon like into our wiki pages nice yeah. making the changes Ooh, I documented something. Look at that you guys. <laughs> hey you. Uh, Every developer's favorite activity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one one thing you said there, uh, you talked about updating 32-bit and 64-bit systems uh-huh. that we said. Yeah. This is this is one of those things where it's like I just sort of nod my head a lot of the time. I've heard the phrases 64-bit and 32-bit, I mean probably for like 15 years now because I feel like Windows, right? When you install yeah. in Windows, there's mm-hmm. like a system 32 and then like another folder or, you know, it's like programs and programs 86 or something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, I've looked it up several times and my brain cannot commit to memory what the heck the difference is between 32 and 64 bit systems is. It's and I have, this is 32. <laughs> yeah, this is now. Come on, Ben. Give or take <laughs> one. Yeah. Roughly And oddly enough, the two changes I had to make were in the system 32 folder and the system WoW 64 folder. I was like, when did it get named WoW? Like I've been on Mac for a while. I was like, at some point it stopped being like the 86 and went WoW 64. And I was like, oh, interesting. It's been a minute. So, (laughs) Does one of those just no longer matter anymore? Meaning meaning like is is 64-bit just the new thing and 32-bit is is a very old compatibility issue? Pretty much. I don't know know anyone that runs a 32-bit operating system now. Probably the U.S. government. (laughs) We don't, yeah. I I mean, this is a wild guess, but I'm guessing like maybe some older Raspberry Pis or something like that might be 32-bit. So, I, I you know I've been out of that world for a long time, but to the best of my memory, the the primary difference, Ben, for between thirty two bit and sixty four bit is it it doubles the amount of memory that the processor can address. So it it basically uh-huh. you can you know it, it, if it was a maximum of two hundred fifty six gigs of memory before, now you've got five hundred twelve, or or maybe it's like it raises it to the power of two or something. I don't know, but it oh, okay. it's a you know it's an it's a giant leap forward in the amount of memory was that is my memory of the the initial reason to upgrade <laughs> and then From, how it's compiled is different right yeah, it, yeah. The compiling is different versus 64 versus 32 i'm sure that we've given an answer and it's probably wrong that probably wrong our, the, the our, listeners our, will let our, us know for sure our, yeah our <laughs> listeners will, will definitely let us know <laughs> what about you tim what you got going on well i survived las vegas what I spent all last week for work, flew in on Monday, and then was there till Friday in Vegas is for the ITC, the Insurance Technology Conference, which we go to every year, and we have a booth. We set up a booth, and people come, you know. Is this the place where like, you had, like, set up the beer garden one year? Yeah, yeah. We, oh, we didn't have okay. a beer garden this time around. We had the beer garden a couple of years ago, which is which was awesome. Yeah, we got a lot of traffic that time. But yeah, this time just had a, a booth. Some of our sister companies, we got a really large booth and you know, split it three ways. So it was nice. But yeah, just, I mean, these things, you know, it's like you go to these, you spend a whole lot of money. It's like maybe you get a few leads, but it's, it's one of those, you got to you gotta pay to play. Our, our biggest competitor had like, I mean, they had branding everywhere. Oh my God, everywhere. It's like every time you turn around, you saw our, our, our biggest competitor and it's like, I have no clue how much money they spent. I mean, had to be probably a quarter of a million dollars they spent. Wow. Because our beer garden was 80 grand and that was just like just one space, right? And they were everywhere. It was like branding on the meeting. They have a big meeting space. So these kind of things, they have like a networking thing where everyone has an app and you try to connect with different people and they're like, meet me at booth, you know, 519. And if you don't have a booth, these little tables, hundreds and hundreds of these little tables where you can go talk to somebody 
and all of those were branded with their name and the, and the whole area was branded with their name. Uh, so, but I hate Vegas. I, I think I've probably been to <laughs> Vegas 22 times in my life. Oh my wow. God. That's, that's, a, that's plenty of times. You don't need to go back to Vegas. Yeah. Maybe because back when I was doing cold fusion conferences, you know, I either went as a speaker or as an organizer, but sometimes I would be particularly like in the fall, I'd be in Vegas like three times in the fall in one year Oof. for 10 years. So, yeah. So it's, yeah, I've seen all the shows. But the best thing is I really do like to, I did to actually do something new in Vegas this time and no, it was not cocaine. Um, <laughs> is it a hot pot? It, it was hot pot. Yeah. And Ooh. not marijuana pot, but yeah, you, you, <laughs> with with chili peppers in it. <laughs> yeah. So, it, what, what is it, a so, hot pot? Thank Ooh. you for asking. So, hot pot is like in China. It's, it's Szechuan. So, Szechuan is like the spicy region of of China where they like their food kind of spicy. And we go in there. They have a table, and they have these little electric burners on the table, or inductive burners, probably. Indu- yeah, induction eyes. Yeah, induction. Yeah, so you don't burn yourself. And they bring you out this this pot of, of boiling broth and they put it at your table and it's it's basically bone bone broth and there's little spices in it and seasonings and everything and then you just order different kinds of meat and vegetables all raw right so there's a super thin slice of wagyu beef pork or lamb or whatever and just they bring it to your table and then you you just swish it in the kind of cook it in the boiling broth and then you have like different like sauces and spices you can like pull it out and dip it so it's kind of like fondue, mm-hmm. but for savory things, right? So it's so, so good. Let me ask you this, because I went to a Korean restaurant. I mean, this is probably like 15 years ago in New York City. And it sounds very similar where they had a boiling thing and they bring you out sliced stuff and you have chopsticks mm-hmm. and you're cooking it. And I, I, at one point I freaked out because I realized that I wasn't paying attention to which chopsticks I had been picking up the raw food with and which I was putting mm-hmm. in my mouth. And I mean, I don't know if... So I know that you're not supposed to deal with raw chicken, but I don't know if that's or part. So do it. Were you doing chicken? Yeah, yeah. Chicken was definitely huh. part of that situation. I, okay, yeah. so if you you were not dealing with chicken, then is that what you're I wasn't dealing with chicken? Okay, but I was dealing with pork and and beef and lamb. But I mean, I, yeah, maybe you're not supposed to. But in China, I guess they don't care because you're putting in <laughs> boiling water. Yeah, I guess I guess because you're dipping in the boiling water, it's sterilizing stuff as well. Yeah, but what's right. nice is it like kind of. You add more meat. First, you kind of do the meat. And then as you add different meats, it sort of flavors the broth even more. It starts to cook down. It just gets more and more tasty. It's so good. I probably just was there for three, four hours. And then yeah. the next night, next night I wanted to go back. One of our coworkers is like, oh, that sounds great. Can I go? I'm like, yeah, we can go back. I liked it so much. So much. And go in there. And the, the same place, the place was called Chubby Cattle. <laughs> <laughs> It's almost as if they put into Google Translate like a fat cow or something mm-hmm. or fatty cow and they came back with chubby cattle. I'm like, yeah, good enough. <laughs> <laughs> so we walk in there and, and, and I mean, there's people working there, but there's no one at the tables. And I thought it was empty. And she goes, oh, sorry, the, the, the broth wasn't good today. So we're, we're not serving. Oh, wow. Oh. And I, was I like, respect first I was dis- that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. At first, I was yeah. disappointed. I was like, you know what? I totally respect that. Mm-hmm. I understand why you have everyone here. All the servers were there. The bartender was there. Why? Why are you working if you're not serving? But anyway, so we went to another place called, called Nabe. This is in Chinatown in Vegas, which is really big Chinatown actually, and it's the Japanese version of the hot pot. And it's called Shabu Shabu, which is an onomatopoeia. Which Shabu Shabu is the sound of swishing because you're swishing. The food uh-huh. back and forth in the water. Oh, it's not cool. as it's not as spicy, but this place was great. It was like twenty five bucks all you could eat, and the food was amazing. So we we were there probably three hours. So yeah, so I ate well, survived Vegas. It was a good show. Had a lot of traffic, uh, but I'm so glad to be home. I wish I had never had to go back to Vegas. But did you here. did you get the hotel room with the water fountain in it again? So I personally didn't get one. We had. So we had multiple companies that our parent company was there and mostly like our, uh, we have a new branding of sort of our group of, that does insurance and banking software. It's called Vencura and Vencura goes there specifically just to buy new companies. Mm. And so we had the giant suite and we had the, uh, each night we'd have like a cocktail party and we'd invite different companies to come up, you know, have a cocktail party, trying to get them to sell 
So that one had that. I took a photo of the of the water <laughs> fountain, aka the bidet. <laughs> took a photo of that. So I wasn't staying there, but I got the full benefit of being able to hang out there. So the full benefit. Yeah. <laughs> so fancy way of saying your butt was splashed with water. <laughs> shabu shabu. <laughs> anyway, so that was me. How about you, Adam? Oh, I've been having a really good week. I just finished my first weekend of doing paid tandems wow, as a tandem instructor. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. It was pretty fun. And yeah, it's just been fun. You know, I, I, we're going to do, we're going to be talking about some of the stuff I was working on today. Uh, I've been working on some code stuff and, and I'm real excited. Like Carol jumped on to start recording the podcast tonight. And I'm like, hang on, can't stop thinking, can't stop typing. I'm still working on this just because like it's, it's fun and interesting. And, you know, I'm working in Svelte and I'm, I'm doing something interesting. So I'm excited to talk about it here in a few minutes. Let me ask you something, Adam, on the, on the getting paid to do tandems. Is that the kind of thing where you actually, like a profit or you just kind of break even for your hobby? Is that? I think long-term I will, it'll be a nice little source of like beer money or it'll help cover some of my skydiving expenses sort of thing. I'm, I'm, you know, uh, I, I'm, I think it could be profitable. Depends on how much time I'm able to dedicate to it and how much I let it take over my skydiving time. Right. Mm-hmm. I still want to do, uh, my solo fun jumping sort of stuff. So I don't want to just be like nothing but tandems. Uh, but it's not, I mean, I made 350 bucks this weekend and that was nice. a very light duty weekend. So, cool. yeah, I mean, I only did five tandems and I mean, I got a nice tip. One of those people gave me a hundred dollar tip. So I made 250 from the the jumping plus a hundred dollar tip. So yeah, well, that's a sweet tip. It is, I was yeah, very yeah. surprised. It's like, are you, seriously? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> to like, keep us alive. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, so we were going to get into this thing I've been working on now that Tim's back from the bathroom. And um, get something to drink. <laughs> and so cool. So, we, my company, Alumni Q, we are, you know, moving towards multi tenant. We have a, a bunch of these different customers and we have lots of data that we have to process for them. So, we have a lot of repetitive jobs and we have a lot of different scheduled jobs to you know, stay on top of the data and make sure things are moving along in a near real time fashion. And it occurred to me today that it, like when I look at our cron tab file for the, you know, the list of all of our cron jobs, it's like 400 and something lines long, very long. And so I was like, you know, I don't really have a good sense of, you know, are we, are we shooting ourselves in the foot, right? Are we accidentally crowding a certain time of day or something like that? So I really wanted to see, is there some way to like visualize the cron tab file? So did cron searching. jobs are like, just tasks that are running, right? Like that's yeah, what a cron so, job is. Yeah. So in Linux or probably in Unix, there's a, a, a tool, uh, you know, whatever, an application called cron. And it's just for like running tasks on a scheduler. So like from the confusion world, it would be a ske- like scheduled tasks are sort of equivalent. Cron, you can say run a script and it'll like save the output or whatever. And, and so we use cron. It's, it's a, you know, battle tested. It's been around forever. It's pretty much mm-hmm. bulletproof. And it's very flexible and resilient, I guess. You know, all the good words. The cron notation is very cryptic. Yeah, for real. It, it can be, but it's also, it's information dense, right? It allows you to, to say, you know, okay, I want it to run on Tuesdays and Thursdays and every other Sunday at 4 a.m. and, you know, 5.22 p.m. And, and, you know, you can fit all that into like 30 characters, right? So it's... It, it is, it, it is, I guess, a little cryptic to try and read. It's kind of like regex, right? Like when you're writing yeah, it, it's not 100%. that bad, but when you're reading it, it can be. So pro tip for that, there's a website called crontab.guru, like guru is mm-hmm. the TLD. And you just yep. paste in your cron expression there and it'll explain the schedule for you. Yeah. Anyway, so we have this uh, crontab file with like 400 lines and each line is a, it's a scheduled task, right? So you have the schedule and then the, the script that you want it to run. And I wanted to visualize this and I did some searching around and I did find there's a website called, I think it's cronheatmap.com. And I tried to plug my stuff in there and I wasn't really happy with what it was giving me. For for starters, the color, like it, it kind of makes this like colored grid and it's supposed to like a heat map, right? The the darker squares will be the ones with more going on in them. And the the contrast, like it, it almost looked like there was nothing going on at all when I dropped in my, my crontab contents. I saw very little difference. It's just like slightly different shades of light blue. And I was kind of disappointed in that. 
And so I, I started looking around. I was like, okay, well, maybe I can find the source on GitHub, see if I can you know, fork it or send a pull request or something like that. There was no links to anywhere on GitHub, but I did find like the author's name on in, in the source code. And I was able from that to find his website. And from there, I found his GitHub. And <laughs> You're stalking this dude. Well, I, really like wanted, with his I, mean, I was fine. I was, <laughs> you know, I was very motivated to get the this solution. And long story short, basically, he said he sold the website. The new owner like hasn't touched it at all. It doesn't seem to be working. And a detail that was not visible on the website, but was in like his blog post when he initially announced that he had created this tool. And I, you know, that's part of why I think it was just not showing me what I wanted to see is that it's ignoring jobs that run more frequently than once per day. So if you have a job uh-huh. that runs every hour or whatever, it just like doesn't look at it. I guess when he created this tool, he was only interested in jobs that run like on a once a week or a couple times a week or whatever to see like, you know, where, where his hotspots were for that. And, you know, I've got a, a the vast majority of my jobs run multiple times a day and so it was just ignoring most of my data and so i was like okay well you know maybe i can get the source from him or whatever like of course you know first thing i did was view source can i just like save as and and modify but of course it's it's bundled and minified and it would be a total pain in the neck to try and make that work so i i emailed them and it's like you know this is what i'm trying to do would you mind throwing up the source on github or whatever and that's when he let me know that he had sold it uh and so i was kind of sol there but he did point me in the right direction. He said, I'm using pretty much all I did was like take this cron parsing library and I use D3 to visualize the data. Okay, well, thanks. I'll see what I can do. And I did a quick, you know, searching around different components for things and ran across a, a Svelte, not exactly a charting library. It's called Layer Cake and it's for like doing visualizations and they, they do a lot, have a lot of examples of like doing charts with D3 and different stuff, but it does more than that as well. And one of their examples was a like a time series sort of thing. And so I was very easily able to go from, okay, I've got, I can generate time data from cron and I've got a thing where I can chart time data in a, in a manner that I like. So I just mushed the two together and, and I wrote some code to like, t- so our cron server, we actually store each job as a new line delimited JSON file, ND JSON. So I had to like, I read the crontop file, I parse each line as JSON and I pull out the bits that I need and you know the schedule and the job name and I, I parse it all out to get the, the data that I need and I'm pumping that into the Svelte application. It's very interesting I, and I will probably try to, I'll see if I can maybe like, you know, post this up as something people can use or whatever, but. Uh, yeah, I was about yeah. to ask that because I think, I mean, that'd be great because I mean, with the cold fusion schedule jobs, it's mm-hmm. easy to create them but it's really hard to see like if you're trying to create a new one you're like oh i don't know other than like looking through a list and say what time's other stuff running yeah you know how long you know it'd be nice to be able to visualize it so is that what this would be helpful for then so you could be like oh i have too much running at 4 a.m so my next job should probably not start till six yeah um and even mine i ended up having to ignore jobs that run more frequently than run than every hour Right, so if it's running multiple multiple times per hour, I'm ignoring my, those jobs for now. I want to try and um, why? Why are you ignoring them? Sorry. Oh, because on the visualization, instead it's of having so the, the way yeah, the, the way that I'm uh, visualizing it is each job gets a mostly transparent colored circle. Right, so you've got like a time series chart. You know, imagine a grid. Right, so you've got days are on the y-axis. Sunday through Saturday and on across the x-axis axis goes from like midnight in the morning until 23 59 59 p.m. along the x-axis on the bottom right and so you can kind of think that of that as I don't know how many a bajillion little grid squares right and in each of those squares I put a semi-transparent mostly transparent colored dot using svg and then because of the, because they're so tightly clustered, because there's so many grid cells, when they start to overlap, then you've got like most, you know, mostly transparent red on top of mostly transparent red on top of mostly transparent red. You start to get these like darker shades of red because they're overlapping, and so that's gotcha. how you see that's where there's high traffic. And I'll, I'll I will certainly post uh, some screenshots of this in our Discord for listeners when we in this episode. So comes this out. this graphs when. 
a task starts, but not necessarily. It, it, it doesn't necessarily give you any indication of how long a task might run for, right? Because that would that not, wouldn't be available no. in the cron anyway. No, I mean we might be able to. Uh, we certainly could add a, an additional field of just like a, a expected runtime mm-hmm. sort of thing to our our cron tab. I told you, you know, the new line delimited JSON thing. We have a utility that we're. I think it's an open source project that we're using to like manage the cron. So it gives us this GUI for. Uh, searching and updating and you know change the schedule or disable a job that sort of thing and that's what's using the ndjson yeah i was was thinking the same thing you were thinking ben i was thinking you had a way to like log the the start and end times of each job and then cross-reference that with the job yo i'll tell you that's something that definitely got away from us at work when we grew as a company over a period of years we Mm -hmm. would have some scheduled tasks that would do essentially a full table scan. But in the early days, it's like, who cares? It's 100 records, 200 right. records, 300 records. <laughs> and then, and then you know, four years later, you look up and you're, and like, I'll notice this because I'll, I'll be looking in the slow query log in MySQL and I'll be seeing queries that are running for like 35, 40 minutes. I'm like, what the heck is going on? And I realized that, oh yeah, that cute little schedule task that we wrote six years ago. Oh yeah, that now scans 17 million rows every hour. You're like, ah, I should have fixed that. Yep. Well, yeah, you got your slow query log and all yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. And then well, the other me, thing me... is for us, we, you know, we're as we scale up and add more customers, right? So we're going, so you have, let's just say we have a job that runs once every minute. Well, now we've got, every time we add a customer, we're adding another job that runs once every minute to, to mm-hmm. do something for that new customer. And so we're it, starting to like identify, okay, this is helping us identify which jobs we need to move to like a multi-tenant job runner, right? So it can go, okay, just run the one task and it can handle across all customers, all databases sort of thing. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you from an architectural standpoint. So one thing that we realized is that at first we had our application nodes running and like, you know, we had our little Kubernetes cluster of nodes Mm -hmm. and that was originally running scheduled tasks and it sort of worked using a a distributed lock in redis so let's say we had 10 nodes basically every single one of those 10 nodes was always trying to run the tasks but only one of them would win for a particular instance and it would take over for like that iteration of the task it it was not very clean and we ended up then essentially taking that code and deploying it as a separate service that was just the task runner so it's the same application code but it was deployed more isolated mm-hmm. so that it didn't have to compete. Um, and, and that was helpful because what we were also realizing is that when the, I call them the live application nodes were running the scheduled task, anytime we'd go to do a deployment, it would essentially wipe out any task that happened to be running at that time yep. and then the task would have to start over. So I'm yep. just curious to know, like how are you dealing with that kind of stuff? With sure, your yeah, and I can talk a little bit about our, our evolution through there as well. So a similar, but I guess somewhat different path that we took was, you know, as we started to onboard customers that had, you know, more data, more traffic, you know, they, they put a higher demand on the system. It got to a point where a couple of our customers just, we couldn't keep running the scheduled tasks against their production system because it would, you know, scheduled tasks would yep. stop production requests from being able to go through, right? That the system became unusable as a user. And so what we did was kind of what you're talking about, like we just made a copy of the production server and said, okay, you are the jobs right. box. We're only going to run jobs <laughs> Congratulations. on you. Congratulations. Like, yeah. You're not publicly accessible. You're just over here and we're going to call the, we'll call the URLs with a custom host name that goes to only that one. And it's only accessible like inside our VPC so the cron server can hit it. And that worked okay for us for a while, but it's, it's not scalable, right? Like you, then you have to decide on a customer by customer basis. Do we need to do this or or whatever? Right. It's a pain in the neck. And so, I think the direction that we're moving towards now, we so we did get everybody off of those, you know, jobs boxes, EC2 instances, and instead we have Fargate instances, and we do have, I think, one remaining Fargate, like it, you're the jobs box, Fargate box, or Fargate cluster. Service. Yeah, that's the right word, service. And longer term, the once we get to where we're like truly fully multi-tenant, where we just have like one, this is the code base, it's deployed and everything scales up and scales down based on demand. 
then it won't matter, right? All the jobs will just run on the cluster and the cluster will scale up and down as appropriate based on demand. In the interim, I think that we are leaning more towards, especially because what you talked about with deploys, right? You, if you have to think about whether or not it's safe to deploy, then something is wrong. Um, <laughs> well, you know, like yeah, I, not, that's sort of my philosophy is you should be able to deploy at any time, even in the middle of some critical process. And, you know, I don't think that we're fully there yet, but we're getting closer. And part of what is going to help us cross that finish line is like serverless stuff approaches. So it's nice that Lambda now, I think, increased the time limit to 15 minutes for a Lambda thread. You're still paying for all that time, but you can, uh, so if you deploy a Lambda while it's running, the, the current one continues while what it's mm-hmm. doing. And then, you know, future invocations will use the, the updated code. And so I'm kind of like leaning more towards some sort of, it, it's almost like maybe step functions or just, I don't know, like almost like dominoes knocking each other over sort of thing, but like, you know, okay. It's time to do the mail render job or process incoming web webhooks or something, right? And and so the job runs a, a function that says, okay, well, and I need to go through the list of all customers who has this module enabled, and then of those people that have it enabled, who has data for me to work on, and then for each one of those, start a, a serverless function to to handle that request. So that way, they can all be running in parallel from the one job request and they won't the, the, you know yeah. won't fall over if we do a deploy that sort of thing it's this is where i i start to feel like my general experience with distributed systems really starts to fall apart or i should say my lack of experience really comes to bear when we have a single code base a single application that we then deploy as two different services like one services this is the live application that the users use and in this service, it's the same exact code, but it's the internal task runner. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, it's two different services, but it is, quote-unquote, the same application. It's actually yeah. the same code repository. So the fact that both of those services hit the same database feels like not amazing, but also not bad, because they're really the same thing. We're just sort of drawing some boundaries around ingress traffic. Where it starts to get weird for me is that... When you take when you take code that is in a completely different repository, like here's my application code repository, and then here's my Lambda functions repository. And mm-hmm. the code in the Lambda functions repository may also hit the same database. Now I'm like, oh, that's starting to make me feel very uncomfortable. If for no other reason, because if I've pulled down a repository and I do a search for some query or some database column, and I'm like, oh, there's nothing in this repository that references this database column anymore. I can probably drop it from the table. And then you do that, and all of a sudden, like, a hundred lambdas start failing. You're like, whoa, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that those were actually talking to this database. And I'm I'm not I'm not sh- throwing any shade. I'm saying, like, there, there is definitely an academic part of my mind and a pragmatic part of my mind, and I don't know how to let those commingle because I don't have the experience to back up the things that may or may not go wrong, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, to just point out that there's, you know, the other side of the coin can be just as frustrating and, you know, full of pitfalls. So we have, we have something in the neighborhood of like 25 Lambda functions that are, you know, sort of like the everyday usage for our monolith, or they're not part of the monolith, right? They've been pulled out to be hmm. Lambdas. They're in the same repo. They're just often, you know, like, so you've got like WWW is the, the monolith application. You've got the... Oh, the so you, you've folder. almost got like a mono repo situation kind of Sort going. of, yeah. And, and, and then there's a lambdas folder and we're, they're all in there. And so you've got, you know, let's just say 25 lambdas. And then each of those, we have a QA and a production, right? So that we can make a change, test it, deploy it, or deploy it to QA, lambda function, test it, make sure we're still happy with it and then deploy it to the production. So now you've got 50 Lambda functions. And then we have GitHub workflows is how we do our CI, CD, you know, deploys, all of that. Run the tests, deploys, et cetera, et cetera. And so 
in our workflows file, there's it's a ridiculous number of things, right? So you've got 25 Lambda functions, you've got 50, Just this is just for the Lambda functions, not for anything else. You've got 25, yeah, run the tests for pull requests, 50 deploy scripts, because you've got QA in production, and then <laughs> you know even more for other stuff, right? Beyond even just what we're talking about here. And the, the GitHub workflows interface for like finding a job that you want to run manually or something is not built for having you know, hundreds of, of tasks that you might want to go through. It's capable of like finding the one you want, but you have to like, okay, show more, show more, show more. Okay, now command F and, and find the one that I'm looking for. It's, it's frustrating. I gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Well, but at least, so my biggest, I don't want to call it a pet peeve, but like the, my litmus test is always, can I search for something? And if I can't find it in that search, is that a safe indication that I can remove that thing from the universe? Mm-hmm. And at least when you're in a mono repository kind of approach, you, th- in theory, unless you have one of these like highly specialized situations where you have a mono repo, but you're actually only like checking out parts of it because it's so huge, you can't actually pull it down into a single computer. Like I think Google, right? Or no, Microsoft. Is it like like Microsoft's entire world? I think exists in a mono repo, but you can. But that may it's like a bajillion terabytes. Yeah. yeah, maybe Google. So at least that gives me some peace of mind that even if the lambdas are being deployed separately, you can still you know Command Shift F or whatever mm-hmm. your IDE of choice does for extended search and check for things and and see that they exist. Yeah. Oh, and if anybody is listening and, and is using mono repos, here's another thing you could look into to save yourself some time and some frustration. Uh, Get sparse checkout will allow you to like check out just a folder of your repo, right? So for oh. like when we're doing Lambda deploys, right? That that on, it doesn't care about any of the other code outside of this one Lambda function, right? So I can say only check out the slash Lambda slash the one we care about for this script. So makes that checkout run a lot faster. Cool. That's cool. Cool. So that's that's where my hat is at on cron visualization. Tim, you got your your son got you into Harvard. <laughs> he, he did. Uh, yeah, I, I just put his name in, but I'm actually taking the courses. No, um, it's a free. <laughs> so I wanted to, you know, just so every like Friday I go up and visit my my parents and I work from work from their place. And Friday's usually kind of a quiet day, so I'm taking this to do some extra learning. And taking a course, it's CS50's Introduction to Artificial Intelligence with Python from Harvard. It's free. It's pretty cool. It's, they have lectures, like a, it's a recorded lecture that you can watch. And then they have some code samples. And then they have like quizzes that you take. And then after you do the quizzes, you have code with the code samples as a problem you need to solve. So they kind of give you the boilerplate stuff to very similar to monthly. Every year they do like a code something days of code oh the christmas time thing yeah wow. yeah advent. the calendar advent of code teamwork you guys like <laughs> yeah advent. so it's kind of like advent of code but the code samples they give you but they they give you a little bit more like how to parse the file and all yeah that. that's, but that's basically a the main fantastic way to like learn something yeah yeah so and as far as artificial intelligence goes it's you know it's it's a so I took the first course. So they, they cover, it's like a 70 hour course. And if you pay some money, like 300 bucks, they'll give you a certificate to say, yeah, you completed a Harvard course. But I mean, that doesn't count toward anything other than just you can print it out and uh, put it on your resume. But so they're covering like a search. Uh, the first one I took was search, but they go all the way to like neural networks and like language processing toward the end. And so I just thought it was interesting. So the first one I saw was, and probably anyone who's been to college in the past, you know, few years probably did these things. But the, you know, the little game where you have like a, it's a square that has like numbers on it. One, two, and there's one tile that's missing. And you can slide the tiles oh, yeah. around. You know, is it all mixed up? And you try to fix that. Like that's the first episode, the first thing they get. Like how to how do you write a program that can figure that out? AI and like. Where you create an agent and then you create the initial state. You represent the initial state. Then you figure out what the goal is and then what actions in each state are available. And then when you take the next, you know, action that's available, you go through, kind of go through the actions and then figure out when that happens, do I reach the goal? And if not, 
am I closer than choosing that? And then also there was another one about like basically pathfinding, mm-hmm. um, depth first search, breadth first. So just greedy first and A star, just learning those kind of things. And then adversarial search, like they do, you have to write a program to do a tic-tac-toe game where mm. you have to represent all the states and play against the computer. And so pretty interesting. I, I just, I, I just try to keep my mind a little more, a little more code related because I'm doing a whole lot more stuff in my life that is not <laughs> code related in my career and, and just because i don't like the idea of i would after this if i stick to this and finish it i'll, I'll look to see if there's anything about generative ai because i don't like the idea of stuff looking like magic just no yeah you know what i mean mm-hmm. don't want yeah. to look like magic so yeah all the ai stuff to me very much feels like magic and i'm even still having a lot of trouble trying to visualize how it fits into my life. I did come up with one idea for something we're using. I don't know if I would even go so far as to call it AI, but maybe ML, machine learning, might be an interesting and potentially useful thing for us. And I I may or may not have already mentioned this on the show, but the idea was to use ML to help us identify fraudulent credit card transactions or attempted fraud. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's kind of one of the reasons I want to learn it. Yeah. In the the field I'm in. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, as a human, I can see these requests coming in where it's like, okay, it's for $5. And the the first and last name are just like, you know, GHJKL. And, you know, it's, it's, and I can see that there's like four or five requests all with the same address or whatever and different names and different credit card numbers or whatever. So, as a human, it's very easy to, see that and go, okay, the pattern here, clearly somebody's trying to do something inappropriate. But like, how do you write that as code? It seems less obvious. And so my thought was Mm -hmm. like, I've got, uh, these all come into us as API requests. So I've got like JSON payloads and I can just go through it. Like, here's a list of a thousand successful, what's the opposite of fraud? (laughs) Genuine or legitimate charges. And here's a list of 500 ones that a human has verified to have been fraudulent, learn to mm-hmm. tell the difference, please. And then like, you know, if I could find some way to mark them, I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't just be like, okay, we're just going to trust this new system, right? I'm going to like try to like yeah. put it in as like, this is what we think and only use a feature flag to only show it to us and like, yeah, and, and add training too. like, okay, a new one came, comes in that the machine didn't find, we'll mark it as, as new fraud or whatever. So more training data. Yeah, or even not, not even just fraud. So like, but so we have a lot of data on w- w- chargebacks, right? So there's there's certain people that will, I don't know what for every reason they'll they'll pay, and then afterward they'll be like, oh, I, I I didn't. They'll challenge it, right? They'll go to the card statement, either not recognize it, or they're just doing something unscrupulous and saying once they've already paid something, they're like, oh, I want to, you know, they'll they'll challenge it. And those are called chargebacks, and just in our industry that we do is like pretty low. It's like less than 1% of people do that. But still, it'd be nice if you could like have a AI that kind of said, chances are this person's probably going to charge it back and then have some sort of way to try to get further info for them to, because if there's extra information that says, basically says, yes, you did approve this, you, you know, you legitimately did this. Because normally they're like, oh, I don't recognize this charge. It wasn't me. You can prove, yeah, it was you, then you can win those chargebacks. So... But it's interesting. So out in Vegas, when I was there, so PayPal came over to our booth and they're, like, they're talking to us about stuff and they were explaining how all the stuff they do. I didn't realize PayPal did more than just plain old PayPal transactions. They actually do a lot of the credit card processing themselves. Did you offer to buy them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think they might be a bit out of our range. But yeah, they were talking about all the stuff. They, I don't know if they're using AI, but they use a whole lot of features to like prevent fraud. Like he was saying, you know, if, if you live in, you know, California and then all of a sudden we see a charge from Vietnam, we can't, mm. you know, reject that charge and never, never even tell you. I'm like, well, what if I were just visiting Vietnam? It's like, well, that's your problem. <laughs> <laughs> Should have told us you're going there. Yeah. So I don't know what level the card, the card people are doing that at, you know, like the visas, the MasterCards. I imagine they do some. Mm-hmm. But I mean, with as much credit card fraud that goes around on around the world, it's like, I think they just that well, that's just the price of doing business and they right. need it. Man, that must be nice to have such a high margin that you can just be like, meh, we'll just let that one yeah. go. <laughs> yeah, for sure. We don't care. I'm done. So how about, 
How about you, Ben? What's what's on your workbench? Uh, I've been continuing to write my book about feature flags, and uh, I'm pretty excited because I so. The book is sort of split up into two halves, not in any official way, but the first half is much more technical and the second half uh, is much more philosophical uh, uh, and like how teams get organized and how feature flags maybe fit more into the overall team and Hero's journey. structures. Yeah, exactly. And I, I have the first half of the book fully drafted out. I'm not saying that it's a good draft. And that the chapters are in the right order and then the words make sense yet. But I actually have words associated with all of the chapter titles in the, in the first half of the book. And I'm now starting to work on the second half of the book, or I've been working on the second half of the book for about the past week now. So I'm feeling pretty great about that. I have gotten to the point where I'm actually starting to try and look up how you actually take content and turn it into a published thing. There's an application called Pandoc, which seems to be coming up over and over again. It's just a, a command line utility, and you say, like, here's my input, and here's some metadata, and some copyright information, and some cover art, and you tell it EPUB version 3 or Mobi, whatever, and it's supposed to spit out a file. I haven't actually tried any of this yet, but in theory, there's a path forward, and I'm, I'm getting to the point where I'm, I want to start to play around with that, and I'm also... I opened up a, a Gumroad account. Uh, Adam suggested mm-hmm. Gumroad on a previous episode. I have not done anything in it yet. I was at, at first I was excited because I Googled for for like how do you turn Markdown into EPUB using Gumroad, and you can't really do that. But no. they do have some sort of new Docs functionality where you can author Markdown directly in Gumroad, I think, and then publish that way. But I'm not going to, I'm not, you know, I have, I have it all written in MD files locally. Mm, Okay. I'm not going to copy paste anything, but anyway, so I don't have too many details there other than I'm I'm making, I think really great progress and I'm excited to maybe be done with this someday. (laughs) So (laughs) someday have you, I, I know you've got, is it, is it all of what you've written or, or, you know, the, the completed rough draft sections, is that what's posted on the website? Yes, they're, they're on, on the website. They're truncated. You know, you get the first okay. like couple of paragraphs in each chapter. There, if you see a chapter that's just bullet points, then I have not written anything yet. Gotcha. Um, so I think I have maybe like four or five chapters that are just bullet points at the end of the book now. And you know, I'm you, I, I, I I was gonna say I do want to start thinking about monetization strategies at this point. I had originally thought, well, okay, let me, if I draft the first half of the book, then maybe I can do a pre-sale for the first half because that feels like some meaty enough content and then continue to flesh out the back half of the book. But I almost don't want to get distracted now. You know, we talked on a previous episode about going down rabbit holes and kind of doing the wrong work and like, Mm -hmm. but when it comes to a monetization strategy, it's it's a little harder to say which is the right work and which is the wrong work because if I can get people invested in the journey of the book, then that's not necessarily the wrong work. It's mm-hmm. uh, maybe setting the book up for more success. I don't know. So, Yeah, I mean, I don't claim to be any sort of professional at, the, at what I'm about to describe, but the impression that I get from watching people who have done very well at this process of like building something in a very visible way, where they're talking about it as they're building it, kind of like you've been, I've seen your Facebook posts on it, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they talk about it as like, okay, so, you know, I'm working on the thing and I can just take little bits and pieces of that, you know, some interesting thought or a screenshot of the thing that I was working on, whatever, and call that like sawdust from working on it. Right. It's just a little byproduct. And I can sprinkle that out over time right. as, 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 you know, teasers and ways to keep people interested and aware that this is going on. And, and the more of it that I share, the more likely it is that people that see it are are going to find one that resonates with them and reshare it. And so that can increase awareness and increase the audience size, you know, and honestly, like, and again, I, I'm talking out of my butt here because I have no experience <laughs> doing any of this and, and, you know, no success to draw on in this approach. But I've heard people say that doing a presale can generate that same enthusiasm. Mm. Yeah, I I think I have to do, even if I don't go with the first half of the book is the impetus for the pre-sale, 
having a rough draft, I think, is still a very legitimate thing because it could take me a while to to polish it a little bit and and fine tune chapter orders and and you know thesis and conclusion kinds of stuff. So is it? I have a book here around here somewhere, and if you want, I can find it and send it to you. I think it's called Write Useful Books. Heard of this? Okay, yeah, it's by the same you guy. I recommended wrote the book. it in a previous episode. I, I probably did. It's by the same guy, Rob Fitzpatrick, who wrote the book that I read while I was preparing for my Taffy workshop. And it's all about, well, I haven't read that much of this book, right? Useful books, but I have followed the guy and I'm aware of some of his other stuff. And he has like an online, like an author community, I guess you would call it. And and there's a tool that you can use to do like beta reading for your for your content, right? So you can say, here's my book content and you can get beta readers to sign up. And you could, you could even say like, okay, if you pre-order the book, then you can be a beta reader and you can give me feedback that could affect the, the final version of the book, right? Like if, I, if you found this story mm. confusing or if you feel like this description in the, the technical half of the book is not good enough, right? Like that could make the book better for you and for everybody else. Mm. Yeah, I like that idea. And then the, the thing I keep thinking about too for myself personally is part of what was good for me about doing pre-orders when I did my book was it made me feel responsible for finishing it, right? right. It wasn't, I, I didn't have that like, ah, I don't have to finish it. I don't owe anybody anything. Yeah, it's accountability. And it, it helped me stay motivated to finish it and just get it done as fast as possible. And And then, you know, probably about a year later, I like kind of revamped the whole thing anyway, just because like, you know, you read it enough times and like you start to come up with better ways to say things, better examples. Yeah. Sort of thing. And you can push it for Black Friday. Huh? There you go. Well, that's yeah. what I, I, I've, I, I have not not been thinking about that because it is November and, and Black Friday is coming up and I, and I would love to be able to get something available by then, which, so at the time of this recording is it's November 6th and Black, Black Friday is what, like, the 25th or the 26th or something. It's the day after Thanksgiving. The 24th, yeah. maybe? Yeah. 24th. I don't remember when Thanksgiving is. It's the last. It's, it's the fourth Thursday of November. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. All right. Is there anything else we want to discuss before we wrap it up for the night? I got one thing I want to throw out, and it's entirely selfish and self-serving. Not not selfish for me, because I, I will get nothing out of it. But So I'm doing Extra Life again this year. Play video games to raise money for charity. I will have a link in the show notes and uh, I'll post it in our Discord. And let me do this. Even if you're just listening, it is tutt.xyz slash extra life, E-X-T-R-A-L-I-F-E. I haven't created that yet, but I'll create it before this goes out. And that will <laughs> link you to the page where you can go to donate. And it's basically collecting money for Children's Miracle Network, which is a charity that pays for medical bills for kids in the hospital whose families can't afford to pay for their care. And it's a pretty awesome charity. I, I've been supporting them for years and years and love doing it. And it's a good excuse for me to get my friends together and stay up all night playing video games, which is fantastic. Very and now cool. my kids are old enough. Like my my youngest wants to stream on, he streams on Twitch a couple of times a week right now anyway. And so now he's planning on doing like a 24 hour stream playing Minecraft, which yeah, I guess if you're into that thing is pretty uh, <laughs> A lot of kids intent. are. Yeah. yeah, they are. So cool. Okay, this episode of Working Code is brought to you by Shabu Shabu, the onomatopoeia of your choice. And listeners like you, if you're enjoying the show and you want to make sure that we can keep putting more of whatever this is out into the universe, then you should consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons cover our recording and editing costs, and we couldn't do this every week without them. Oh, and our I got to put that in the, my notes here for the the outro the, and our transcription costs as well. And so. Patrons, thank you very much. We, we really appreciate you all. Special thanks, of course, to our top patrons, Monty and Jean Carlo. We are about to go record our after show. Looks like tonight on the after show, Ben is going to rant about short form video content. Should be good. <laughs> and Carol, apparently, I, I didn't hear about this. Apparently, there was some sort of a human error that resulted in direct deposits not working. So yeah, Carol's going to ask us about, about that. Or, and, and hopefully, Tim has an answer. But you got to get on the after show to, to uh, find out how that goes as a reminder we are going to turn off the patreon free trials at the end of the year so if you want to give it a shot you go to patreon.com slash working code pod 
see what that's all about. And you can support us for, I believe it is as little as $4 a month. And it's actually even lower than that. If you'll go, there's a discount if you pay a whole year at a time. So less than $4 a month, less than a dollar a week. Anyway, that's going to do it for us this week. We'll catch you next week. And until then, remember your heart matters and it's on fire on that heat map. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to Working Code with your hosts, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. We'll catch you on the next episode of Working Code.